Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is episode 21, in which we'll be discussing having video games in your van. And we're going to do a little tech talk about a strange concept called the electric dry box, a product review of a socket shower that I found quite handy, and a place to visit with so much history that I couldn't fit it into 20 podcasts. Let's get started. You want to live in your van. You want to do all the things you do in your everyday life in your van. That's kind of what we're about. And people will alter what they want to do. There are people that go the ultimate minimalist route and have their van simply be a place to sleep or meditate and they don't want any distractions. Or maybe that's why they're in their van. They're trying to get away from regular life. And then there are others who are like, I'm not giving anything up. Just because my house moves doesn't mean it's not going to have all the things my regular house has. I'm talking to that latter group this time. I'm talking about that group that wants to hop in their van, pop some popcorn, and flip on the Xbox and play some whatever game you want to play. Right now, I am currently playing Grand Theft Auto V online, and I will play something else later on. Uh, If I'm feeling pensive and meditative, I will play The Long Dark. If I'm looking for escapism, I might play some Far Cry. Whatever you want to play, it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about all your different options right now. So, there are basically four different options options for playing video games in your van. And I'm going to start with the hardest and most difficult and drill down to the simplest and easiest. So the hardest, most difficult way to play video games in the van is actually how I like to play video games at home. That is on a full-size console gaming system such as the Xbox One or the PlayStation 4. You can totally use these in your van, but there's some trade-offs. First off, these things require a lot of power. Now, I did a bunch of research this weekend about whether you can run these directly off 12 volts. And technically, the answer seems to be yes. The brick that comes with a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One outputs 12 volts. So whatever you plug into your wall, if you're in the UK, you're plugging it into 220. If you're in the US, 110. What's coming out the end, what's going into the actual PlayStation or Xbox is only 12 volts. It's actually more complicated than that. There's a 12 volt in and a 5 volt in. Bottom line is, theoretically, you could not need that brick. You could rewire things so that your Xbox or PlayStation ran directly off your batteries without an inverter. But, and this is one of the very rare times I'm going to say this, it's probably not worth the effort and cutting up a brick power supply to make this work. You're probably going to be better off using an inverter. (gasps) Yes, I said it, folks. I am recommending an inverter for this one application. Inverters aren't that expensive, and you don't need that powerful of an inverter. In fact, if you look on the brick itself, it'll tell you what you need. And I'm finding anywhere a 200-watt to a 300-watt inverter is usually enough for a PlayStation or an Xbox. But then you've also got the other problem. What are you going to watch this on? You're going to need some kind of a TV or a projector. 
Those you can do with 12 volts. I would highly recommend you find yourself a TV or projector that runs on 12 volts. There are lots of hacks and tricks about this. And I'm not talking about going out and buying a TV especially made for 12 volts. I'm talking about going on Amazon and researching what the final voltage is that these TVs need. And if that TV has a brick, as many of the smaller TVs do, chances are it's going to be 12 volts. And you can literally just plug that straight into your batteries and you're good to go. No inverter. And if you haven't been listening to the podcast long and you're wondering why I'm hating on inverters, well, the answer is very simple. Inverters are very inefficient. They will cost you as much as 20% of your power just to function. So in the interest of saving power and using it as efficiently as possible, I don't recommend inverters in general. Now, once you do those things, you've got your Xbox and PlayStation up and running, okay? You've had to spend a little bit more money on batteries. You're going to want, obviously, a lot of battery capacity, and you're going to need a way to charge those batteries. If you're not driving every day, you're going to want solar, or you're going to want shore power or generator. You can play all day long if you can power it all day long. So it's ultimately a power problem. It's not a technical problem. If you're going to use a TV, you're going to have to find a way to mount it. And you have to remember that these objects were not meant to be jostled about a lot. They're meant to sit under a TV and not move. So don't just throw these in your van. Make sure they're securely mounted. And if you can, mount them on something that has a little bit of give to it to absorb very hard shocks. Okay. Now is as good a time to talk about this as any. If you're paying attention, you realize I've missed a big problem here. Where are you getting the games from? Well, the Xbox and the PlayStation, most of them, but not all, have an optical drive. So you can just get the games from GameStop if they're still in business, which looks doubtful at this point, or by getting the discs from Amazon or Best Buy and put the disc in and play. But all of these things update over the internet. And a lot of them, the gameplay is over the internet. I mean, I'm playing Grand Theft Auto V online. Obviously, I need an internet connection, and not just any internet connection. I need a good one. So what are you going to do about that? Well, that's obviously a problem every van owner has, and you can solve it in the same ways. But for online gaming, parking in the parking lot of McDonald's and kind of stealing their Wi-Fi outside is probably not going to cut it. You're going to need better Wi-Fi than that. And a very brief survey of things seems to indicate that if you have something like a Verizon hotspot, that will be enough for you to play games pretty well online. Latency is the problem. It's not so much speed, which is a problem too, but latency is the big problem. And these little Verizon pucks, and I'm assuming the other companies as well, do pretty good on latency. So you can actually play games on them fairly well. Here is the big thing that you have to keep in mind. While playing a game doesn't use that much bandwidth, I mean, we're talking 40, 50 megabytes an hour, getting the games over the internet, getting downloads of the updates can cost you a bundle. These games are running up 20, 30, 50, 60 gigabytes in size or more. Well, most data plans are going to run out long before that. Uh, my, my iPhone, I've got a pretty hefty plan on there, and I've only got 15 gigabytes of hotspot that I can use. I don't know that I could download any, as they say, Class A game for that. So while you're going to be able to play the games, updating them and installing them from the internet is going to be a real problem. And you're going to have to figure out how to do that. Like maybe have a couple days a month where you take the box out and bring it somewhere with a strong internet connection and then get all your stuff or something like that. That's that option. That's the consoles. And notice I've only mentioned two consoles. We'll, we'll get to that in just a sec. 
The next option is a, a fairly obvious and fairly simple option, and that is to use your PC. Don't use your consoles. Get a PC, not a Mac, not a Linux box, not a Chromebook, unless you like very simple games. Sorry, Mac. I love you, Mac, but you are not a gaming machine anymore. No, get yourself a PC. Get yourself a decent gaming PC. Doesn't have to be crazy expensive, but somewhere closer to $1,000 than, say, $200. You want a video card in that thing that has a, a good number of gigabytes and at least 16 gigabytes of RAM. And if you can find one of these that runs off of USB-C, which I think we're starting to get there, then you can go straight to 12 volts without an inverter. And... You will have everything that you need to play the game in one very easy to put away tight thing that is meant to be jostled a bit. This is probably the best way to play games in the van. Also, if you need to update things, you can just pick the thing up and go to the library or go to the truck stop or wherever you can get Wi-Fi. And it's actually very simple. And if you're thinking, oh, but then I can't use my controller, well, of course you can use your controller. There are controllers for PCs. That's not a big deal at all. I have a controller for my PC. It's a wired controller, which I prefer, so I don't have to deal with batteries. And it's just like playing on a console. So I think that's probably the best option if you're looking for those Class A games that are usually only found on PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. Now, you can also use the older ones, Xbox 360 and Wii and all that. That goes without talking. If, you, if you're a Wii fan, you're in good shape. You're going to be able to use your Wii in your van with no problem. I want to talk about what is a really interesting and great option for van folks, and that is the Nintendo Switch. Nintendo Switch, if you're not familiar with it, is a handheld video game system that is also a console. It comes in this fairly large handheld thing that's, say, the size of a small tablet with controllers built in. And it has everything you need to play right there. You don't even need a screen. And it runs on batteries that you charge with USB-C. So again, you're, you're good. You don't need an inverter. The controllers come off, and that box plugs into a TV. So you can play those games on the TV, just like you had an actual console. Because this thing is an actual console. I think it is probably the best option for vans because it's low power, small relative to other consoles, and highly configurable, and can always be charged on 12 volts because it charges USB-C. However, this is a matter of personal preference. It is my least favorite gaming platform for two reasons. One is, I don't really like the kind of games Nintendo has. They're not my style. They tend to be Japanese anime style of games more than others, and that's just not what I'm interested in. Personal thing, easy to ignore. The second one is a little harder to ignore. The games are expensive. Now, I've heard the argument that, like, well, these are full console games, why shouldn't they be the same price as other console games? And I agree with that, but a lot of the games are exactly the same as games that you can download for your phone for 20% of the price. I mean, you're going to pay 60 bucks for a game on your Nintendo Switch that you can get on your phone for like $9.99. I see that a lot. Um, one example is this new game called Mud Runner, where you're driving a truck through the mud. This might have some interest to van life, folks. And it's basically free on Xbox because it's part of their um, monthly package where you get to play all the games that I can't remember the name of right now. But for the uh, Switch, it's 25 bucks on sale. Eh, it's, it's going to end up being personal preference. But if you're new to video gaming and you're just looking for something, I would definitely either go to the Switch 
or see if you can use your existing PC. As with all van things, there is a solution. Almost. Air conditioning, I'm still not convinced there's a solution for. But there is definitely a solution for video games. It's just a matter of how much you're willing to spend and how much space you want to take up in your van and how much power you're going to have. Those are the big things to think about. But, hey, game on. It's your house. You can do whatever you want in Okay, quick piece of tech talk here. I was in the Amazon rainforest a few years ago. I was actually in the in Ecuador. Ecuador has a big portion of the Amazon rainforest in it, and while the Amazon River isn't there, other rivers are there that feed into the Amazon. It's all part of this gigantic basin. But if I say the words Amazon rainforest, what comes into your mind, that's where I was. It looked just like that. And we were staying in these, um, they were huts, basically, but very, very nice huts. Queen-size beds and showers and electricity, you know, very nice huts, deep in the rainforest, two hours upriver from any civilization. Not a place you were going to hop in a car and drive out of. And when you're in the rainforest, it's very, very humid, of course. The temperature is about 85 every day, and the humidity is about 99%. So imagine... You walk into a bathroom and someone's taking a shower or has just finished taking a shower. That's your normal life in the rainforest. And you can get used to it. And I'm not trying to tell you not to go to the rainforest. I loved it there. By the way, the place I went to was called Sacha Lodge, S-A-C-H-A Lodge in Ecuador. You can look that up. Highly recommended. But inside the huts, they had this thing that I thought might have an application in van life. It was, they called it a dry box. Now, to us, a dry box is simply a box you can close to keep things dry, like if you were going to go kayaking or something. But to them, it was a completely different thing. So they had built a closet, just a, a simple wooden closet. And at the bottom of the closet, there was this door that opened like a garage door. Well, swung up like a what I call a California-style garage door. And inside there was a light bulb. Not a, an LED light bulb, not a fluorescent one. No, an old-fashioned incandescent light bulb, 60 watts. And that was it. That was all this thing was. And the idea is you would take your electronics and put them in there and then shut the door. And then overnight, that electric light bulb would provide just the right amount of dry heat that it would dry out your electronics. And you know what? It worked. This, this, was, this actually worked. So I was thinking, well, in van life, there are definitely places and times of the year where humidity is a real problem in the van, and you might have some electronic issues. So why not have a dry box in your van? There are different ways I could think of doing this. Um, the heat that comes out of your van's engine is dry heat, typically, depending unless you have a problem. That heat coming out of those vents should be pretty dry. The heat coming out of a cheap Chinese diesel heater, as they're called, is also a dry heat. Those would work. Um, but the idea of having a box that you could blast with not super hot, but reasonably warm, dry air to kind of get your electronics to dry out seemed like a great idea to me. So I'm tossing that out there. I'm happy to discuss it more. But heck, you could, you could have a big box of rice and just throw stuff in there. No, I don't think that would work the same. Anyway, that's just an idea. Think about that as a possibility if you're going to be in very moist environments or do a lot of water activities and bring a lot of water in the van. A little bit of product review here. And this is the Smarter Fresh Quick Connect Sink Faucet Sprayer Set 
metal detachable faucet sink hose attachment with hand shower for rinsing, hair washing, and pet cleaning quick connect sprayer. How's that for a title? Basically what this thing does is it replaces the aerator on your faucet. That's the, the part that you can unscrew that the water comes out of. You know, there's a little thing in there that adds air to the water that gives it that nice texture. You unscrew that and you replace it with this thing, which has its own aerator in it. And it's a socket. It's kind of like this plug that sticks out. And then there's a shower that comes with it and you plug the shower in and it turns any sink into a shower. Ding, ding, ding. You can see the value of this in a van. So this is what I use for a shower in my van. I have the one sink and the one faucet. I leave this plug screwed in all the time and I can use it just fine as a normal sink. But when I wanna take a shower, I plug in the, sh the handheld shower adapter and then I can go outside the van and use the shower right from the sink. Or I can even do it inside the van. I just have to be very careful about where the water goes. Same old problems with anybody's shower in a van. It has an on-off switch on it and the water flow is, of course, dependent on what you've got for a water pump. But my little itty-bitty water pump does just fine with this thing. I, I love this. It's a simple, quick, easy solution so that every van with a faucet can have a shower. Now, as far as temperature is concerned, you're on your own for that. I only have cold water in my van, and I'm totally happy with that. If you want to do hot water, um, you're going to have to have a hot water system or get a different product that I recommend, which are these rechargeable handheld showers that have the pump built into the base. But I'll talk, I've talked about them before. I will talk about them again later because I plan on getting one. But no, this thing is a great solution. Basically for $35, you can have a shower in your van, at least on the outside of the van, if you're not going to set up anything inside. Highly recommended. It's useful for a bunch of things. The hose it comes with is pretty long. It's not long enough that you're going to be able to wash your whole van with it, but certainly enough to wash off a surfboard or a bicycle or a dog or a kid or a raccoon or whatever you've got laying around. If you want to rinse it off, this will work for that. So I will have links in the show notes. Highly recommend it. This particular brand I'm going to recommend. There are others and they are a little cheaper. I've used some of them and they are not as good. So this is one of those few times that it's not the concept I'm recommending, it's the actual product. Okay, place to visit. Oh, it's going to be so hard to squeeze all this in here. I could talk for hours about this place. Alright, I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, which of course is worth about 800 stories in and of itself. Salem is an incredibly diverse place to visit. It is of course known for the witch hysteria and sadly now it is known as Halloween Central which really it wasn't when I was a kid there so my experience of Salem is quite a bit different than what people might think yes I went to Witchcraft Heights Elementary School and the high school's football team was the Salem Witches I went to Dairy Witch rather than Dairy Queen all those things are true but what we really focused on was the nautical history of Salem at one time, Salem was a really big deal in the world. Uh, it was one of, if not the most important seaport in the entire United States up until, say, maybe the mid-1800s, early to mid-1800s. The clipper ships are what really killed Salem. Again, see, it's, I haven't even talked about the place yet, and I'm already going off on, on uh, tangents. The place is called Winter Island. Winter Island is so named because it was in the winter harbor of Salem. And that was a harbor that it was safe to bring your boats into in the winter. 
It has long ago been connected to the mainland by a causeway, so it's not as though you have to take a boat to get there. This place is a fort dating back to the 1640s that has been used for many different things over the years, usually with a military bent. There's a, there are, is actually a Civil War era fort still on the island. And in the 30s, they turned it into a Coast Guard rescue base. So there's a giant airplane hangar, and uh, there's a ramp that goes into the ocean where those PBY flying boat planes used to come up. Now the city has turned it into a campground, basically. The reason I'm recommending this is not only because I find this place so fascinating, but it's because it's the best way to see Salem. Salem doesn't have too many hotels. In fact, there really aren't. You can't stay at the Hampton Inn in Salem, Massachusetts. There isn't one. All there is is the Hawthorne Inn, which is an historic hotel downtown that costs an arm and a leg. And parking is very, very tough. So if you're a van lifer who wants to stealth camp in Salem, even though there's a Walmart, I don't think you're going to get away with it. It's just too tight. Remember, this town was founded in 1626. Actually, it was a city even in 1626. It was not laid out to be friendly to driving and parking, and it still isn't. So if you want to see Salem... Go ahead, spend the 30 bucks a night, as I last checked, to park at the Salem Willow. Uh, Sal- <laughs> not the Salem Willows, that's next door, that's a whole other story. At Winter Island, and there's a trolley that will take you into town. That is the best way to see Salem. You can go out and explore on your own, and if you have any questions about Salem individually, go ahead and ask me. I, I took courses on the history of Salem, I've read a lot of books, even though I haven't lived there for 40 years? Wow. A lot of the stuff I know is much older than that, so it shouldn't have gone anywhere. Holy cow, I'm old. Anyway, Winter Island in Salem, Massachusetts. Link in the show notes, and wow, I wish I had another three hours to talk about this place. Speaking of interesting places to visit, I have a great resource recommendation for you, and it's so great that I may have mentioned it before, and I don't care, I'm going to mention it again. And this is a website and an app called Roadside America. Way back in the early days of the internet, some folks were starting to realize that there were people interested in the more unusual places to visit. Yeah, you can go visit uh, Mount Rushmore and you can see the Statue of Liberty and all that, but what about those giant muffler men on the side of the road and, you know, the largest ball of twine and all that kind of stuff? What if you want to see those? So they started gathering this stuff. And, you know, there's a website called Weird New Jersey that has a whole bunch of stuff like that. And another one was called Roadside America. It even became a TV show and there's been a bunch of books and it's still going and it's still great. But now, in my opinion, it's, it's in its best form. And that is in an app. There's an app you can download for your iPhone, and I'm assuming Android as well, called Roadside America. It is not a free app. You have to pay for it, and you have to pay by regions. So you would, like, get the Midwest region or the Northeast region or whatever. Or you can get all the regions for a certain price. I think it was $9.99 to unlock all the regions. It doesn't matter. It's worth it. The app is really well done, and what it basically does for you is you say, hey, I am here, and it does your GPS coordinates, show me the weird stuff to see around me, and it will. 
and it will map you to them and give you a description with all the kind of stuff like this is on private property, don't do this, or this site closed three years ago. All that kind of stuff is in there. And you can take pictures and add your own things. I've added a few things to Roadside America. One of the things I added to Roadside America is, if you're ever in Bangor, Maine, is the standpipe, the big water tower that was the inspiration for the book It. I added that to Roadside America. That's my big contribution to the community. But if you have any, you can add them too. So that's it. Nice and simple resource recommendation for you. Roadside America, the app, the website, and the books as well. But I really find the app to be the most useful thing. Oh, so I had a question from Patricia in Florida. Thank you, Patricia. And she asked a very sensible, reasonable question, such that I should probably turn this into a main topic for an episode, but I'm going to answer it for her here because um, I don't want to forget. What essential tools should you bring with you on the road? Well, there's two different approaches to this. One is tools. That's for somebody else. I'm not bringing any tools. That is completely legitimate, by the way. I may have said that in a dismissive way, but just because you want to live in your van doesn't mean you need to be the one who's fixing and doing all the stuff in the van. That's up to you. I want to have some knowledge on how to fix as many things as I can. That's me, but you do you, and that is fine. And there's also the other approach that you're going to bring your whole garage with you, and you're going to be able to build a house with all the tools you have in your van. That's up to you too, but I'm just going to recommend, based on my experience, the minimum things you should bring with you if you are going to go on an extended van trip. Number one thing you're going to bring is a set of screwdrivers that matches every kind of screw you have. Now, a lot of vans use these Torx screws now. Make sure you have Torx bits, T-O-R-X, for every screw that you're likely to encounter. And that those are usually the ones that you didn't put in, but are in the, like, the front of the van and some places you've had to mess with. Like you had to remove some molding to run some wires. You want to be able to get at those wires while you're on the road. So get those and have your Phillips and flathead screwdrivers as well. Or if you're Canadian, your Robertsons. Um, I am actually a fan of the Robertson. I just don't see them very much down here in the States. Then the next thing you want, and I am so addicted to this thing that I actually bought one just for my van, and that is the battery drill. I did so much of my van with just a simple battery-powered drill, and I didn't get the big ones. I didn't get the one with the big fat battery at the bottom. I mean, those are fine. They've got a lot of power. I wanted something more nimble, so I got the orange Ryobi hand-sized ones, they don't make them anymore, I don't think, but it didn't have as much power, but it was small, so you could get it in places. It was very easy to, like, say, put in a cabinet so you could drive a screw. I ended up buying one just for the van. It lives in the van. I have to remember to recharge it from time to time, which is which that can be challenging, and that's the thing. It doesn't work unless it's charged, so there's an argument to be made to have an electric drill in the van as long as you have an inverter, but some kind of a drill, because remember... We don't use drills for drilling holes so much anymore. We use them for removing screws. And if you have any kind of thing where you're going to need to take something apart on the road, holy cow, you're going to want that drill. The next thing is something to cut with. You're going to have knives, razor blades, something like that, a razor knife, something that lives in the van. I always have my multi-tool with me, so I use that all the time too. But make sure you have some kind of a cutting device. And then the thing that a lot of people forget is you want supplies. I have pieces of material that match the material I use in the van, lots of twist ties. Yes, I have duct tape, and yes, it's duck like a duck, not duct like a duck. 
I even have some baling wire. I mean, the reason people make jokes about baling wire is because it's really useful. If your muffler drops off your van, you can go under there with baling wire or an old coat hanger and hook it back up and you're fine. It's a great thing to have. The other thing I have is a roll of Velcro, which I use a lot. I also have some double-sided sticky tape and I have a collection of screws and washers. I have found very many times that if something goes wrong, it's because a screw ripped out. And the only way you can really fix that is to put a washer over the screw. In short, basically, you're going to take a subset of all the stuff you use to build your van. And a good way to limit that is to give yourself a space and say, this space here, this box here, maybe you've got a, a toolbox or an old fishing box you're going to use. All the tools I'm going to bring go in there. One thing I don't bring with me is a hammer, because everything's a hammer if you need it to be. That's not something that I think I, I need, and I didn't use very much in the build at all. I also didn't bring my jigsaw with me. I do have a little tiny hacksaw, and though I used the jigsaw quite a bit in the van, I just can't think of too many cases where I'm going to need the jigsaw while I'm on the road. So those are some initial thoughts. I may do a whole big topic on this and actually make a list of things I think you should bring, but in short... Bring a subset of the things you use to build the van, and you should be in good shape. Thank you for listening to this episode 21 of Built to Go. I absolutely, completely, really, totally appreciate you listening. Feel free to go ahead and leave a comment or throw a like or do whatever you can to support this podcast. That's what keeps me going. You can reach me at built2go.com. Music is by Simon Wag, a.k.a. Sir Mouge. And next time, we're going to talk about a very special place in Colorado where you can see things that you would never believe possible. And seriously, it's a really hard-to-believe story. But that's next time. Have a good week. <laughs>